I'm Jason Solomons and welcome to a Sounds Jewish special from Jewish Book Week. We're here in central London at the Royal National Hotel for what's fast becoming one of this country's most important literary festivals with acclaimed writers from Britain, the United States, Israel and way beyond. We'll be hearing from Simon Sharma, David Schneider and Kathy Lett, as well as talking to one of the biggest names in current Jewish writing, American author Jonathan Safran Fur, about Jews, meat and rejecting your mother's chicken soup. We'll be finding out why White Christmas and Easter Parade are actually Jewish songs. And we'll talk to Will Self about reclaiming his half-Jewish identity. I'm Jason Solomons. You're listening to Sounds Jewish at Jewish Book Week. Salam, shalom. We're in the vasty hall here at Jewish Book Week where all the books are piled up for the punters to finger and buy. We've got seminars going on behind us. We've got talks going on to our left. We are really at the centre of Jewish literary life. Jewish Book Week launched with a huge fanfare this year to celebrate the slightly odd festival of Purim in which Jews are instructed to wear fancy dress, to party, to get so drunk they can't tell their left from their right. Seriously, that's what it says in the book. A key Purim tradition is the Purim Spiel. Think of it as a cross between a satirical review and an April Fool's gag. This year, the Jewish Community Centre for London sponsored their very own Purim Spiel, hosted by comedian and performer and sounds Jewish friend David Schneider. Ladies and gentlemen, Jews and Gentiles, please will you welcome onto the stage for this Purim evening's entertainment your host, David Schneider! Sounds Jewish reporter Henrietta Foster caught up with the Purim performers. Novelist Anita Dimmont, writer Kathy Lett, actor Debbie Chasen and historian Simon Sharma after the show. Yes, Purim! She began by asking Anita Dimmont what Purim is all about. Purim is the Jewish Mardi Gras. It's the holiday of springtime and release. It's the holiday where you're supposed to get so drunk you don't know the difference between the good guy and the bad guy and where cross-dressing is permitted and gambling is permitted, all sorts of things that the rabbis of old did not say was okay. So it is, it is a springtime holiday. It's the fun holiday. Simon Sharma, this Purim thing, it's a very strange <laughs> festival. I'm finding it difficult to get a grasp on it. Perhaps you could help me a little bit. Oh, it's just your basic Jewish festival, you know, sex, betrayal, treachery, dodgy marriage. But it's it's one of those festivals, along with Hanukkah, which doesn't involve a lot of solemnity. It's officially it's officially rated a kind of Division Two festival, which means you can really let rip on it. And it's a fantastically good story. Um, so it was it was perfect to make to have some fun with. It's a burlesque. It is the story of a sort of stupid king who treats his first queen badly, and she leaves him. She's a a smart, modern woman in some ways. Um, and then there's a fashion show, to a beauty pageant, to select the next queen, who is Esther. Um, and Esther is a, a secret Jew, and her uncle Mordechai is also a secret Jew. They come to the palace. Um, there's a horrible anti-Semite who is the grand vizier who, who gets angry at Mordechai and says, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And the stupid king says, okay, because the king had given a decree that all the Jews could uh, be murdered on this one day. He couldn't rescind it according to Persian law. So instead, they arm all the Jews who can then fight back and they massacre the people who are going to massacre them. Kathy, how do you feel about this festival? Because this must be new to you. Well, I'm a Me Too Jew. 
I mean, I used to work in LA writing sitcom, and it was nine Jewish guys and me in a room. So I got so Jewish when I worked there the hair, the shoes, the jokes, the hands. I'm so Jewish, I feel guilty that I'm not Jewish, right? <laughs> All my friends are Jewish. I live in North London, I go to Shabbat. Jews have a joke gene. I mean, every Jewish person I know is really funny, and they're the kind of people I like. So that's why I'm, I'm here. And how about you, Debbie? Does this mean anything to you as a festival? Because I'm, I'm still very confused about who everybody is. Uh, well, I am Jewish by birth and by tradition. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a practicing Jew. I have to say that quite quietly. I hope you can hear me. Um, but I, so I'm quite naughty. But I do do the eating bit um, on all festivals, uh, including Yom Kippur, when you're not supposed to eat. Um, <laughs> Uh, and we do have something called Humantaschen after the bad guy, Haman, uh, or Haman, or Human, or Haman, I don't know what his name is. Let me just say one more serious thing about Purim, which is in my little spiel here, is that uh, after the end of days, when the Messiah comes and everything is great and nobody has to suffer anymore, the only holiday on the Jewish calendar, according to the great rabbis, that will continue to be celebrated is Purim. <laughs> and it's the holiday where you're really allowed to make fun of everything. So I think the wisdom in that is phenomenal, that yeah. humor is going to be required. Heaven would be so boring mm. without jokes. I told you the Jews had a joke, Jane. I'm Jason Solomons coming to you from Jewish Book Week for Sounds Jewish at The Guardian. I'm wandering through the cafe area here. There are tables uh, bedecked with East End memorabilia. There's a Kabbalist's table as well, selling information about the Kabbalah. Let's move on. They're staring at us. Hello, a familiar face from Sounds Jewish. What are you doing here? Who are you? Naomi Quinn. And I'm the lucky person who's going to be chairing a session later this afternoon with David Behrman, who wrote A Fine Romance. Well, we're going to be talking to David Lehman as well, so there. Um, this is about how um, Jewishness manifests itself in some of the great American songs. The great Jewish composers and lyricists. I think the only non-Jew in the pack is Cole Porter, who was, has been quoted saying he writes Jewish. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, what, what does Jewish Book Week mean to you, Naomi? It's a wonderful, wonderful time. It goes across the community. For me, it's as as exciting, as important as a, a way of identifying Jewishly as Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Um, and we get to look at all these wonderful books and hear all these great minds talking about the work that they're doing. We all know Jews are bound up with food. Think of the festivals. All of them give a starring role to Nosh, whether it's Humantashen at Purim, those little cakes that translate as Haman's ears, or Motzas at Passovers, or nothing at Yom Kippur. It's all about food one way or another. And often, that means meat. What's a Friday night dinner in a Jewish home without chopped liver and chicken soup? But Jewish Book Week has been playing host to one of the younger generation of writers who's eating from a rather different menu. Jonathan Safran Fur is an acclaimed novelist, the man behind Everything is Illuminated, and an outspoken vegetarian. Writer and critic Hepzibah Anderson spoke to him for Sounds Jewish. Jonathan, food means family in Jewish culture, and... Um Although your quest ultimately led you away from chicken soup, um, it was motivated very much by the birth of your son and also um, your grandmother, who sort of sits at the moral core of the book. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the experiences that she went through that inspired you. She begins the book, and she sort of presides over the whole book. And 
food has always been um, the primary vehicle for love between us, in large part because we don't really share a language. I mean, she speaks English, but not it's not her it's just not the language she dreams in. Let's say that. And food, of course, is not only symbolic of, but it's explicitly sustenance and health and all of these things that matter to somebody who survived the war. So she left her family um, and moved east across Europe, ultimately to Russia. But um, food played a, a role in in, um, in her survival because at times the greatest threat was actually malnutrition and not not you know Nazis at, at her ankles. When I have spend time with her, it's always been centered around food. And that food has almost always been meat. And when I was thinking about what to feed my son and, and also just how to eat myself, my thoughts often went to her and the recognition that certain choices that I would make would also affect how I spent my time with her and how, you know, these, these vehicles of love. So, um, you know, as with everyone who's ever lived, food was more complicated than just what I felt like eating um, at a given moment. And as a consequence, you now no longer eat her chicken soup or her uh, chicken carrots that you describe so deliciously. Um, am I right in thinking that she has dreamt up a vegetarian chicken soup recipe for you? She has. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know if I thought that we would stop eating these foods and then she would put empty plates in front of us, you know. But, of course, she didn't. And the nice thing is that food has become a better vehicle for love now than it was before, in part because now it involves, it's more deliberate and it involves an effort. And she figured out these sometimes very straightforward and nice, sometimes extremely bizarre recipes. Like she does a vegetarian chopped liver, chopped liver of food I never ate, even when I ate meat. And it's the quintessential meaty, organy food. And to think that a vegetarian diet would call for a vegetarian chopped liver is very funny. But, you know, we ate the chicken because it was what she served and she served it because it was what she had always served. It was not, it was not actually such a thoughtful, deliberate food. Of course, the preparation was loving and the warm kitchen and the like stained apron and all of this, but we still have all of that. It's just that now in place of that food, we have a food that we have asked for and that she has found a way to make. And it, and it, it just conveys more. It's a more special eating. Eating is is a more special experience now. And I suppose for for your children, you're you're now creating new food memories for them. Um, one of the uh, the other delicious things that you described that y- you have surrendered um, is, of course, the gefilte fish at your um, seder. I wonder what what has replaced that. To be honest, I didn't have such a hard time giving that up. I mean, I know there are people on earth who really love it. It was never the food that I would fantasize about. It's not my desert island food. That having been said, we ate it. And what has replaced it? Just other things. You know, it's not... Nobody fabricated some sort of, like, tofu ball that looks like gefilte fish. There's no need to. Um, Yes, it's a, a food with an incredible cultural history. And to turn one's back on it, to say no to it, does require a certain kind of cultural loss. But... If that is what this cultural connection is hinging upon, then it's not a very rich culture. And I'm not saying that food can't be like a very, very special contribution, an important contribution to a culture, but it has to be more than that. And this is perhaps a bit of a tangent, but Jewish culture, especially in America, I think has relied way too heavily on certain associations that actually have no meaning. They are only associations because 
um, in the most literal sense, they connect us to the past. It's what people used to do and we do it, as opposed to something that we have continued to choose over time or something that is informed with, you know, that that also contains within it a story or a lesson. So to me, was there a loss in saying no to gefilte fish or, or, or any number of other foods you can imagine that we've said no to? Yes. Is it, is it a great loss? Not really. One of the joys of Jewish Book Week is that it often draws in those you wouldn't usually see at conventional Jewish events, including those who rarely take part in Anglo-Jewish communal life, let alone go to a mitzvah. Will Self and Adam Thurwell are giving the festival what's billed as a beginner's guide to Jews on the edge, looking at the half-Jews, non-Jewish Jews and self-hating Jews on the margins. Uh, Will Self, is there such a thing as a half-Jew? You're either in or you're out, aren't you? Uh, no, I think there is such a thing as a half Jew. I mean, I think the problem for me is that, you know, when when Gentiles uh, say to me, uh, "You're Jewish," I say, "Well, I'm, I'm half Jewish," and they say, well, "Which parent?" I say, "My mother," and they say, "Well, you're you're Jewish then," and I say, "No, that's what the Jews say." You know, it's interesting that 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 notion of you're either in or you're out has sort of it, it percolated into the, the wider Gentile community as well. But no, I think you can definitely be half Jewish. I'm half Jewish. I'm and you're here at Jewish Book Week. Yeah, I want to reclaim this half Jewish identity. Well, what are you doing at Jewish Book Week? Have you got a book to sell? Uh, well, I've always got a book to sell. <laughs> Adam Thurwell, uh, welcome to J- Jewish Book Week. Are you Jewish? Where, where's the Jew in you? I'm not Jewish at all. This is a horrible <laughs> imposture. That I'm, um, I'm, well, I'm exactly the same as Will. I'm half Jewish. My mother is Jewish, so therefore I am Jewish, but therefore I'm only half Jewish. And, and where do you feel it? Where do you feel it? It's in your uh, toe, your knee? In my guts, I feel it. In my, in my Adam, you, you once said that um, there is no such thing as Jewish literature. I assume it was because you meant that there's just literature, that it knows no bounds. Um, yeah, I think, actually, I'm trying to remember actually staying, saying this. Um, I think what I, and then I think I might have followed it with another um, generalisation, which was that all Jewish literature was half Jewish. Um, <laughs> Discuss. And I think really what I was trying to get at was um, the idea that, yeah, that really the great kind of Jewish literature is great literature. And and that often this comes from kind of marginal states, that actually there's a kind of creativity to being kind of caught between two, seven kind of positions. Um, and that therefore the idea of a kind of pure Jewishness was something that I find um, slightly boring. Your talk sort of suggests that you're, you're on the edge. Do you feel on the edge, Adam? What's interesting about the, this kind of question of being on the edge is I think, I don't feel it. I think it's what's interesting is when p- other people want you to be on an edge and think that in some way you must be in some uncomfortable position because you're only half or... Do you find that there is a Jewish tone? In some of the, the, the examples you just enumerated there, you, you kind of feel that the, I suppose, the American novel kind of throbs with some great Jewish voices. But are they Jewish or are they just great voices? Well, I think the, I mean, the Jewish novelists I love, something like Bellow or Roth, I think what they, the greatness was actually in the sense that they were remarkable for claiming a kind of a Jewishness that actually was almost invisible. So someone like Augie March um, is Jewish, but that's almost invisible in the novel. Um, and that's the kind of bravery I'm interested in, is where there's nothing in Bellow that's not Jewish, but actually his greatest fiction, I think, takes that Jewishness and takes it as red. And so actually the experience is a, is a much more complicated and, and, and fragmented one. Uh, Will, I'm going to talk about just very briefly about the self-hating Jew who comes into your, the, the, uh, I suppose, into, into the, the broad church, the, the large synagogue of your, of your talk uh, today. Uh, I, I mean, I may be a self-hating Jew, but I don't hate myself because I'm a Jew. You know, it's not... Um, 
I think that there is a, an, an element of self-hatred in all sorts of people. But I think that, um, you know, what's, what's obviously interesting, I mean, I, I, my mother was, I would say, was to some extent a self-hating Jew, and I think that... How, how did that manifest itself? Well, she, I'm not sure if she was a self-hating Jew. She was a Jew who hated Jews. <laughs> I'm not sure she actually hated herself because of her Jewishness. She always used to feel that the, the, the English Jews who we grew up around were relatively colourless. My mother's um, self, Jewish self-hatred consisted in a, in a kind of alienation and a desire for assimilation. She married out twice. She used to say to me when I was a kid, uh, that nobody really knew she was Jewish, which was kind of absurd. She came to England at a time when, and married into a Gentile family at a time when anti-Semitism was, of course, far more obvious and socially prevalent than it is now. And I think she had a real desire to, to assimilate in that way and that that set up an instability as it did for all sorts of Jews of that generation, that there was a feeling that if they weren't assimilated that there was something hateful in their lack of assimilation, and yet they didn't wish to, to have a conventional Jewish identity. So I think, I think you know, I'd, I'd, I'd plea, make a plea for some sympathy for the self-hating Jew, which, again, I think has been a victim of the polarization in the Jewish community, you know, that the idea that people should be uncomfortable or uneasy about their Jewish identity is seen as shameful after the shower. But I'm not so sure that it is shameful in that way. For me, the archetypal figure in my childhood was the woman who lived at the end of the block who my mother who was a my mother said was a polish woman uh, and her house her privet hedge was completely overgrown my mother used to say the reason why she kept it overgrown was she was worried the nazis were going to come again and she wanted them to pass over like now i have no idea whether this story was true it seems incredibly apocryphal repeating it now but it, for me it was a symbol of what my mother's anxieties were about her own jewish identity uh, we're going to have to let you uh, you two go and greet your audience here see if they, they let you in or they keep you out uh, but uh, it's been a fascinating conversation adam thurwell will self thank you for coming in you're listening to sounds jewish from jewish book week I've got uh, two two ladies who've just come out of the uh, the Will Self uh, Adam Thurwell talk. Uh, ladies, who, who am I joined by? Uh, Sarah Rubinstein and Caroline Gaskin. And you've just been to see Will Self talk about yes. Jews on the edge, Jews on and the margin. Adam Thurwell as well. Yeah. 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 How did the talk go? Do you think? I thought uh, Thurwell and uh, Self will be interesting because I have a lot of people in my family who are intermarried, so I have a lot of half Jews as well. Yeah. Um, and I just found it a bit sad that they were busy defining Jewishness via the eyes of the anti-Semite and not so much via trying to talk about a positive Jewish identity when they've made fun of a lady who said that she found it positive being half Jewish and another lady who said her father was the Jewish one but she felt Jewish. They said how 2010 and I found that very sad as well. So you found he was too mocking about the situation? He was definitely mocking the audience in order to get the crowd to laugh, which was cheap. Uh, what's your name? Shirley Hinden. You look like you've got books for grandchildren there. Is that, a, is that me you making think it I'm up? too old for them to be children? Yes, grandchildren. I was actually looking for a book that doesn't seem to be in print anymore, which was a children's Haggadah, where you pull things and things happen. I've got that one. Yeah. You can't well, have I've mine. got one for one child, but I've got this another one. But I'm thinking that this pop-up book might, for a four-year-old, might keep her from running around like a mashuganah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll enjoy Jewish Book Week, I shall, I shall. Thank you. What, what's your name? Siegel. Leslie. Leslie Siegel. Where have you come from today? 
Uh, I've come from Ilford. Ilford? Is it Jewish Book Week? You come to regularly to Jewish Book Week? Uh, usually pop in, yeah, sometime, yeah. What does it mean to you, Jewish Book Week? Why do you come? Well, I love seeing all the books. Yeah, I can see you fingering a few uh, few volumes yeah. there. Are you going to be buying anything today, Leslie? Well, I've bought a couple of things, yes. Oh, what have you got? Um, the Cable, you know, the magazine from the East End. Is that where you're from? Yeah. Well, originally, yes. Yeah. Is this where you sort of reconnect and find out how many stories there are still being told about that? Yeah, the era? Yeah. It's amazing that there is so many books. You don't realise that, no. I like reading our history and everything. And you come and see, see some of the talks here at Jewish Book Week? Oh, yeah, we're going into the next one. What's that? It's, it's about Hollywood films, so uh, yeah, it should be good. What could sound less Jewish than I'm dreaming of a white Christmas? And as for Easter Parade, feh! But what's this? Those songs were actually written by Jews. Just think of the greats of the American popular song. Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Jerome Kern, Richard Rogers, all Jewish. The cultural critic David Lehman has been wowing them at Book Week with his revelation of the Jewish subtext of so many show-stopping tunes. He calls this relationship between Jewish songwriters and American songs a fine romance. David, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on your book. It's a, a beautiful uh, book and a very funny book as well. Oh, well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here with you, Jason. Uh, it was, it was the idea that, that this was a very a sort of strangely ironic and humorous uh, topic to explore, the fact that these American songs are so Jewish. Well, there is a basic irony in, in that fact, and uh, the great thing is that uh, by writing these songs, the Jewish songwriters managed to help to define the American dream, and, uh, and, and they contributed to American culture in a very significant way. You mentioned White Christmas and Easter Parade. Both were written by Irving Berlin, whose real name is uh, Balin, uh, just as George Gershwin is really Yaakov Gershevitz. And Harold Arlen is Chaim Arlach. And, uh, Berlin and Arlen are the sons of cantors, as was Al Jolson. The, the sons of uh, people who sung in synagogues? Oh, yes, exactly. So do you think that this is where the, uh, the melody lingers on? Well, that's nicely put, since it's a quote from an Irving Berlin song. Uh, I do think that uh, often you can trace certain melodies to uh, the liturgy. Uh, for example, the first song, Swanee, is uh, I've been away from you a long time, which uh, is an echo of Hashiveinu uh, Adoshem. It's the same uh, tune. Whether he was conscious of that or not as he was writing is, is, is a good question. But uh, the Judaic flavor of these songs cannot be disputed. You mentioned sort of the melodies coming through from uh, from their time spent in synagogues as kids, I suppose, as sons of, of cantors. Uh, what about the thematic kind of element, the lyrics? Where do, does the Judaism come out in them? Well, the, uh, there's a very strong uh, emphasis on wit and humor and sophistication. And these are naturally cultural qualities that are prized by uh, the Jewish household. Mm-hmm. And Have you got also- a particular couplet that you love? 
Oh, there are so many. Uh, for example, uh, how better to summarize Hamlet than to say it's where a ghost and a prince meet and everyone ends as mincemeat. Uh, that's from That's Entertainment, the lyric by Howard Dietz. Uh, mine is, uh, although he may not be the man some girls think of as handsome. handsome. Oh, that's from some, uh, Someone to Watch Over Me. That's a fantastic rhyme. That's one of Ira, Ira Gershwin's best uh, efforts. He's really great. Although he may David, you mentioned that, that these, these songwriters were in some way peddling an American myth. They were helping to create the American dream, I suppose. So there were others in Hollywood kind of churning out movies that were doing much the same thing. But what possessed these songwriters to kind of help create? What do you think it was in them that they had this sort of misty-eyed idea of what they would like uh, America to be? Or was it that they wanted their audience to think America was like this? Well, they were, they were very grateful to be in the United States. They, they were the result of two waves of immigration, the first in, in the 1860s, mainly from Western Europe and, and Germany. The second, after 1881, when there were terrible pogroms and an awful persecution of the Jews. Uh, in the United States, they had uh, this upward mobility and the opportunity to do all sorts of things they would never have been able to do in Europe. So they gave thanks all the time. Irving Berlin was probably the most uh, patriotic and true believer in the American dream. But you could look at The Wizard of Oz uh, by Harold Arlen and, and, and Yip Harburg, the music and lyrics, and see it not only as the story of a young girl's coming of age, but as a kind of allegory about the end of the Depression and the enchanted land that would lie at the other side of the rainbow. The other uh, part of uh, this, this revelation, if, if you like, is that means that some of the great shows, you mentioned a few of them there, some of the great shows, Guys and Dolls, for example, Jewish. Well, Guys and Dolls is written by Fr Frank Lesser, uh, words and music. And in fact, one of the songs, for example, is called Sue Me. And the lyrics include all, uh, well, Nathan Detroit is singing, and he's the gambler who's been engaged for a record number of years to the showgirl Adelaide. And he's on his knees begging forgiveness for some transgression or other and says, uh, all right already, I'm, I'm just a no good Nick. All right already, it's true. So new, so sue me, sue me, what can you do me? I love you. I love you. Give a holler and hate me, hate me. Go ahead, hate me. The I best love years you. of my life, I was a fool to give to all you. Right already, I'm just a no good Nick. All right already, it's true, so new, so sue me, sue me, what can you do me, I love you. David Lehman, a fascinating subject, um, I've loved, uh, I'm, I'm, my mind is racing now with couplets and, and a sort of uptown elegance and cocktails, I'd like a martini now if you don't mind. What would Gershwin have drunk? I think he wouldn't have turned down the offer of a martini. Absolutely. 
David Lehman, thank you very much. That's it for our Sounds Jewish special from Jewish Book Week. Thanks to all our guests on this month's show and special thanks to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters, it's goodbye and happy reading. Shalom, shalom.